You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last nine years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, we had UFC 263 over the weekend. We did it up big with the UFC 263 watch party over at your house. Probably the first time in a year, more than a year, that you and I and Sir Nigel have all hung out together indoors. And not that I want to bore the general listening audience with our betting exploits every single week, lest we become, you know, like every other sports podcast out here. But as part of the new $20 We Never Want to See Again feature that we started over on the CME's Patreon page a couple weeks ago, you and I both suffered some demoralizing bad beats on Saturday night. Now, you are still way ahead. You are way out in front after two weeks of our betting contest. But you caught a particularly bad one on Saturday. I don't know if it overshadows the rest of the wins. I don't know emotionally how you are doing here as of this Monday afternoon, but just real briefly, step by step, take the people through the tragedy that befell you early in the UFC 263 pay-per-view broadcast on Saturday night. Yeah, I mean, I could save them some time and tell them if you've ever read The Old Man in the Sea, that's basically what happened to me. I was I was a hero. I I had it all and then it was taken from me. Unfairly, unjustly, I would add. Um So basically, what had happened was uh I in all my wisdom and foresight, I put down a prop bet on Paul Craig. I put 5 bucks down on Paul Craig to beat Jamal Hill via submission. Yep. Now, and I told you you were crazy. And I said, if that did. happens, I'm leaving. I said, if that happens, I'm getting up, I'm getting my coat, I'm getting my hat off the hat rack, and I'm storming out of the UFC 263 watch party, and I will take my chances with the night. <laughs> well, the the thing that made it even worse was that you had Jamal Hill in your parlay, right? And so, for like, kind of busted fight your I parlay. Needed. It was the first <laughs> fight I needed for my four-fight parlay, and Paul Craig just fucked it all up. Right off the bat, Paul Craig snatches him up in that arm bar. I see the arm extended. I know what Paul Craig can do with a submission. I'm looking at it. I'm going, cha-ching. You know, daddy's ship just came in. I'm, I'm already spending... The like seventeen dollars or, or whatever it was that I was gonna make, it probably it was more than that. I think it was over twenty bucks that I was gonna have a, as a return for this one five dollar bet. You know, I'm already down at the the pizza place telling them, yes, I would like breadsticks with that because money's no thing anymore around here. And then that stubborn ass Jamal Hill, he just won't tap. Yeah, his arm is stuck. He's 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 been got by Paul Craig. Paul Craig has got him. He won't tap. 
let's Paul Craig just mangle his arm all up instead. And then Paul Craig, realizing what's going on here, says like, all right, I'll, at first he looks like he's going to transition to a triangle choke, then he just pummels away with hammer fists, all while Jamal Hill's arm just flopping about like a dead fish. And finally, we get it stopped, and it's called off due to TKO. I'm sitting there with my submission, Paul Craig via submission slip in hand, just like the old man had that that big-ass marlin lashed to his boat, gonna bring it on in and show everybody, look, you thought I was unlucky, you thought I couldn't do it, here it is, and then the sharks hit me. The sharks picked it clean down to the bone, so I get to, I still roll into port being like, hey, I was right. I did it, and yet, for for this wisdom, I will receive nothing. Yeah, that is a tough one, and I think you've got a real grievance on your hands. I have already said you may want to think about uh, addressing it some way, maybe petitioning the state athletic commission, maybe calling the state gambling commission, seeing if there's something they can do for you. Because that, by all rights, should have been a submission win for Paul Craig. I guess if we can take solace out of anything, it's that Paul Craig and Jamal Hill went out after the event and had themselves a jolly good time, according to uh, Jamal Hill's social media. Yeah, this I'm looking at a tweet right now from Jamal Hill. It says, me and at P. Craig MMA are good. So IDC, I think that's ID, I don't care. I think that's, I'm hip to the lingo. What anybody else is talking. And not only did he get me drunk the whole night, we straight turned the fuck up. I'm blessed living my dream and meeting some of the most amazing people. Hashtag still winning. And then we have here a blurry nightclub photograph that I, I mean, I can only assume is Jamal Hill and Paul Craig dancing together in the club. Yeah, it could be Bigfoot. But it does look like... And the Loch Ness Monster, <laughs> but we're just going to take Jamal Hill's word for it that it's him and, and Paul Craig. He also adds, first thing he said in the cage to me was, I'm a good person. I don't know what was said, but I have nothing but respect for you. And I realize I let trolls paint a picture and judge somebody off of that, and it will never ever happen again. I think he means never happen again, or won't ever happen again. I'm still going to talk my shit, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's Hell nice. yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Uh, all's well that ends well. Remember, you're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast proper. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines and podcast libraries. But if you think we're having fun right now, like we've been telling you, you need to check us out over at patreon.com slash co-main event. We're over there party rocking all week with three additional podcasts every single week. You can live and die with our betting exploits, and you'll probably want to sign up for the UFC 264 watch party coming up in early July when I believe we're going to get Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier doing it for the third time. So that sounds fun. And of course, ongoing right now. It's Nicolas Cage movie month. We're going to be watching Face Off this week, which I know is a film we're all excited to see. So if that sounds fun to you, hit us up, patreon.com slash co-main event. We are there literally all week, and we have three easy tiers of patronage for you to choose from. We got music this week from our guy, Stockholm-based producer Simeo, a.k.a. co-main event podcast listener Alfred Larson. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash Simeo. That's S-E-E-M-I-O, Simeo. 
three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast and round number one after 24 minutes of pretty much total domination leon edwards notched an important win over nate diaz on saturday but after a dicey final minute who wins via stockton rules and in round number two no babies are safe we repeat no babies are safe as the Brandon Moreno era is underway at flyweight. And in round number three, Marvin Vittori really had nothing for Israel Adesanya in their middleweight title fight. Who can challenge Izzy at this weight now? And is is Vittori somewhere right now explaining in a really loud voice how he disagreed with the official scorecards? All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from small time Seinfeld character, Dr. Tim Watley. So you can see we've got a new trend developing here. In listener mail, the uh, the recurring bit part Seinfeld character continues to email us. Dr. Tim Watley played, in fact, by uh, Brian Cranston in his pre-Breaking Bad days. Dr. Tim Watley writes, Dana said, so we're already off to a good start. Okay. okay. Dana said on Saturday that Damian Maya has fought his last fight for the UFC, per parentheses, sad face Ben. How will he be remembered? Perhaps the greatest specialist ever to transition to MMA? And what do you think he will do next? This had to be a uh, a tough one for you personally, Ben, as the co-main event podcast uh, staff jujitsu reporter to see your longtime guy, Damian Maya, succumb to a unanimous decision loss to Bilal Muhammad during the main card of UFC 263 in a fight where it kind of seemed like Damian Maya came in with the game plan that he was going to go after that single leg and not much else. How, uh, well, how, how did this strike you? And, and what's up? What's up now with Damian Maya in uh, Ben folks's book? I had emotionally prepared myself for something much worse. So I'll take this one. And in fact, kind of worked out in all ways. I had below Muhammad in my parlay. So I thought that he was going to win, but I also, I was prepared for maybe it to be a really bad night for Demi Maia. I mean, he's he's had a, a crazy good career, he, but he's also 43 years old. And yet he has the, enough of a name that if you're going to hang around in the UFC and the welterweight division there, they're going to put you against guys like this because that's just, that's who there is to play with, man. And uh, there, there could be some bad nights for you if you stick around too long that way. So, you know, he lost the decision. It was pretty a pretty clear decision but it's not like he took a bad beating or anything i was okay with that when i heard him say afterwards that he would like one more fight and he would like it to be with nate diaz and then finish his career i went god damn it demian you just you just talked me into it i was ready for it to be like okay let's you know a gracious goodbye for demian Maya and everything but when he talks about him and nate diaz i'm like man would watch yeah i would watch that fight I would also feel like, okay, well, here's one where maybe we'll get to do some jujitsu. Two two guys who who know their way around a gi gonna get in there and mix it up. It, you know, maybe if he does take a beating, it won't be a super bad beating, and maybe we just have ourselves a respectful good time in the cage, just full of just you know experienced, educated violence. And yeah. I felt like, okay, I could, especially 
if you could tell me that's going to be it, like he's going to say beforehand, win or lose, I'm I'm quitting after this one. I think that that would be a totally fine fight. I also wonder if the UFC goes for it. I kind of don't think so. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Nate Diaz versus Damian Maya is that it actually kind of makes sense right now yeah. if you just go by, you know, their respective standings in this division and, you know, recent win-loss records and stuff like that. It's probably a slightly lower profile fight than Nate Diaz would want moving forward. But at the same time, like I think we were all a little bit surprised that he accepted this Leon Edwards fight headed into the weekend. And uh, a guy like Damian Maya might be weird and just fun enough to, to turn Diaz's head. Of course, the thing that is going to be the, the make or break aspect of the whole thing is what everybody's going to get paid. But uh, I don't know. It, it's, uh, it seems like it, it might be halfway fun to do that fight. Although I think if Nate Diaz is allowed to keep it on the feet for that one, that uh, things could get pretty ugly for Damian Maya pretty fast. On the other hand, as we begin to face the reality of the end of 43-year-old Damian Maya's MMA career, I think we should be happy. I think we should all be quite joyous, not only to see, you know, a great steward of the sport, a guy who seems pretty well liked, like, uh, move into more private life, but also like a guy who you, I don't think you can look at Damian Maya and be like, well, this guy underachieved in mixed martial arts. You have to look at him and be like, this dude made the absolute most of the skills that he had. And maybe to a surprising degree, like, uh, one of the only guys really in this game at this point who comes in, you know, not entirely one dimensional, but relying almost entirely on one skill set and that people know what he's going to do. And in some cases he can still do it. And that's really unbelievable in 2021 when everyone pretty much cross trains and is ready for, for any kind of uh, offense that their opponent is going to bring. Yeah. Well, the thing that I think is really impressive about him is that he started out like he was going to follow the normal path of the specialist in the UFC and in MMA, but he course corrected because he did the thing that often happens where you see somebody who comes in with a good grappling specialty, learn a little bit of boxing and then start feeling good about it and telling yourself like, I'm going to knock these people out. These hands, they don't know about these hands. They think that all I got's a ground game. And we've seen other fighters go through that. We saw Dean Maya go through a little bit of that phase. I think his team will tell you that it was the Chris Weidman fight where they had a kind of a come to Jesus meeting with him afterwards, where it's the one where he, Eduardo Alonso, uh, his longtime uh, manager and coach, said that afterwards they were asking him, you know, why did you keep it on the feet so much? And he said, I just felt like I was close to knocking him out. And they had to all tell him at no point was that close to happening. That is not a thing that was real. That was a thing just in your head, man. And we got to stop this. And yet he was able to make the adjustments afterwards. Like, okay, I do still need to train striking and and be adept in those areas. But I also need to think of my striking game as a means to an end. And it's not knocking people out. It's not that I'm going to keep win fights there. It's that I'm going to use it in a way to help me get to the ground. And so that I can do the thing that I really came to do. And he had a, a stretch there where people knew what he was going to do. And he kept doing it to him anyway. And doing it to good fighters. And that, I think, is, is really impressive. As far as if, if he's the most uh, accomplished or the best specialist ever to cross over. I mean, 
Ronda Rousey did go through a similar progression as a specialist in MMA and then kind of retired from the sport before she could course correct. But she was pretty damn successful. It's hard not to say that Ronda Rousey didn't come in and have a good career. I also think when we think of specialists, we kind of only turn tend to think of it in terms of like grappling arts people developing the rest of MMA. And we don't think about how many times we've seen somebody who comes in as a good striker, comes in as a good kickboxer or something, and then learns the rest of MMA from there. I mean, fellow by the name of Izzy Adesanya has done pretty well in that regard. So uh, I guess it depends exactly how you want to frame. I mean, even somebody like Clarissa Shields, it's like she's coming in as a specialist. And the other thing, we just don't usually think of it that way in those same terms. But if Demian Maia, even if he doesn't get that last fight, even if this is it, he finishes with 22 wins in the UFC, one shy of Donald Cerrone's current leading record of 23. Also the winningest Brazilian fighter ever in UFC history. I'm, still t- I'm telling you, you, you want to keep that one in your back pocket as a trivia. You will stump even people who think that they're hardcore sports fans down there at the Buffalo Wild Wings with that because you know people are saying Anderson Silva or some shit. Demian Maia has that in his back pocket. I mean... How do you not feel good about that, even if it ends right here? Next question this week comes to us from Patty C., who writes, Gentlemen, as I await for my heart rate to come down after Dober versus Riddell, I realized that Brad Riddell's nickname is Quake. Now, that was a real Donnybrook, deserving of a better nickname. Based on that chin and significant strikes, might I suggest the Ice Australian? Thoughts and prayers to Sir Nigel. Uh... This was a good fight. Drew Dober and Brad Riddell end up winning fight of the night. $50,000 bonuses in the prelim. They featured prelim at UFC 263. Uh, Kind of a rough one for me because I had Drew Dober by decision. And, of course, Brad Riddell kind of comes from behind to to beat, beat him out, get the decision here. Brad Riddell, though, Ben, remains undefeated now in the UFC. Uh, he is out to 10-1 and one as a professional He's got four wins in a row to start his UFC career here. Uh, I agree that that Quake is not a tremendous nickname, but I feel like it's sort of uh, different. It's sort of distinctive. I can't think of too many Quakes. Uh, and so I don't think it's a terrible nickname for Brad Riddell. I, what do you think about this nickname? What do you think about Brad Riddell's standing in the shark tank of the lightweight division where he is now pieced together four straight wins? I will read to you from the personal life section of the Wikipedia page of Brad Riddell. Riddell dubbed himself Quake in homage to his home city of Christchurch, which was devastated by an earthquake in 2011. The disaster destroyed many of the buildings, including Riddell's place of work, but it was also the catalyst for him moving to Auckland and building a career in combat sports. Hmm. Now, okay. what do you say? Now that you know that, better or worse? Better. impression of Quake. Better. But, you know, I don't like it when somebody gives themselves a nickname. However, mm-hmm. considering the circumstances around this one, maybe we got maybe we gotta make an exception. That sounds like a nickname that that has like a a unique origin story and an origin story that clearly is close to Brad Riddell's heart and life story. So uh, I don't know. I'm not totally against Quake, I have to say. I also feel like it's going to be tougher to talk him out of it once you know that (laughs) it holds this personal meaning for him, that it feels like an event that changed the course of his life and landed him into the career or path of a mixed martial arts fighter. The only problem I really have with it is just Quake sounds like somebody the X-Men would fight. Yeah. You know, and like somebody that fight at the beginning 
of a movie, like not even the main villain. Like Quake sounds like a, a pretty minor X-Men villain. That's something to contend with. That's true. That's true. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Kai Eastwood over on Patreon, who writes, uh, what are your thoughts on Yaroslav Amosov comfortably beating Douglas Lima yesterday? Uh, where does Lima go from here? Also, Amosov only has 877 Twitter followers. Uh, so we, we talked about this a little bit leading up to this fight that kind of the uh, the bugaboo, I guess you might say, of Bellator is that they have a bunch of really, really talented fighters like Yaroslav Amosov, the Ukrainian dynamo here who came into this fight at 25 and 0 and then wins the Bellator welterweight title from Douglas Lima. Douglas Lima, obviously one of the better fighters historically in Bellator. And uh, Amosov advances his record to 26 and 0 and is now the champion. But is and so clearly is like super talented, must be an incredible fighter. And yet, as uh, Kai Eastwood points out here, less than a thousand Twitter followers would lead you to think very low profile. This is one of the problems with Bellator, right? That like uh, historically, especially during the Scotty Cokes era, we've relied a little bit on bringing over, you know, high profile UFC free agents who can come in, bring a little name recognition, but might be a little bit further toward the end of the career. But Bellator, aside from a guy like AJ McKee and the Pitbull brothers, there are some, uh, I think, exceptions to this rule but at the at at the same time bellator seems to have like a a fairly healthy crop of talented fighters that nobody knows who they are and i think that that's a problem and now of course you got this guy as your your champion i guess you better go about trying to make him into somebody maybe on the order of what you've done a little bit with vadim nemkov well I will point out, we can tell by this question that it was written, it seems, on Saturday, because it refers to the fight as being yesterday. The fight was Friday night, I believe. Here we are Monday. I'm looking at at Yaroslav Amosov on Twitter. Now he's up to 1,014 followers. Okay. So about a, he picked up 150 followers or so. Not bad, you know? I mean, <laughs> all you had to do was win a Bellator championship, add a couple hundred followers, uh, maintain an undefeated MMA professional record through 26 fights. That's it. That's all you had to do. But also, you know what? I'm going to go ahead right now, Chad, and be 1,015. Okay. Boom. You know what? I'm going to do it too. I'm going to give him the Ben Folks bump. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it too. And I want everybody okay. who's listening to the sound of our voices right now to pop open the Twitter machine and go ahead and go follow Yaroslav, the Dynamo, Amasov. All right, now I, f- I followed him. He's up to uh, 1,016 followers on my by my. There we go. He also, I'm just looking uh, at his Twitter. There's a picture that he seems to have posted on New Year's Day. It says the first training session in the new year. The main thing is not the last. A smiley face emoji. Happy New Year, 2021, everyone. Be happy series of emojis including hands and christmas trees and celebration stuff the picture is of him and a friend in a boxing ring uh wearing boxing gloves and everything and holding up a pit bull who is like put me down okay but everybody's have everybody's just you know like hey we're gonna have this picture we want the dog in the picture better lift up the dog so we can get up in the picture and the dog is just like what i don't understand what is happening and i don't like it you know what? You have my attention. 
I'm willing I'm willing to see where this goes. A 26-0 MMA fighter just became Bellator champ. I mean, let, let's see. Let's see where it goes from here. I don't know much about the guy, but I have to say from the sound of it, that tweet sounds very, very on brand for someone who is the Ukrainian Dynamo. So there we go. Everybody go follow Yaroslav Amaslav on Twitter. Okay, one more question here this week. We're going to do this one from uh, Trevor Finch. We talked about this a little bit, but quick question. So how the hell long can a ref let the fight go after an arm has been ripped from the goddamn socket? The fighter that did it stopped to let him know and then had to go back to smashing Hill in a triangle while the arm flops in the wind. You know what? We we uh, we bag a lot on the uh, on the referees in this sport, but I have to admit it was pretty hard to watch uh, Jamal Hill's arm swing around after having been dislocated, as it turned out, by Paul Craig, because we found out later in the night that somehow, some way, despite the fact that they made him stand there for the decision with a goddamn mango growing off the side of his arm, that Jamal Hill did not suffer a broken arm in this fight, merely a badly, I think, dislocated elbow. Uh, but this was this did seem like a late stoppage, and I know one one that hit you right where it hurts because it had the referee jumped in immediately to stop this thing. Ben folks is probably $20 richer over there. Yeah. I also, though, I always feel a little bit conflicted when we want to see stuff immediately stopped because of like an injury due to a submission, because we're not all that consistent with it. You know, like you can see Tony Ferguson get his leg wrenched all up in a heel hook, but just because the nature of that submission is that when it does pop something on you, it's not going to be in a way that you can visibly see it. You know, you, that, that where the same way with the arm, that it is a sickening thing to witness when somebody's arm gets popped like that. And so I think that that forces a reaction in people when really it's like, I don't know, we see people go through stuff all the time in the sport where, okay, maybe your leg gets kicked to the point where it's super compromised. But as long as you're willing to limp forward on it and continue trying to fight, they'll let you try. And yet we see your arm get popped and then we expect the referee to immediately be like, okay, that's it. We're not going to let you fight with what looks like an arm that's just been injured. However, we've seen people, you know, if you get if you hurt your arm blocking a kick and clearly you can't really use it after that, they'll let you continue on that if you want to. So... I don't know. It feels sometimes like we're just making these decisions on a cosmetic basis more than we are for any sort of like real concern or, or like having a, a real consistent plan about like, here's what you can continue through and here's what you can't. Here's what I would do if I'm Paul Craig the next time this happens. Let's say you just gruesomely break somebody's arm, but the referee is not stepping in. I reach over with my hand, grab the broken arm. And okay. tap. I, I tap for him. <laughs> Just tap, My tap, tap. My God. And then I look it's at the ref and I say, he's tapping. <laughs> he's tapping, ref. And if that doesn't work, then you use the broken arm to make him hit himself in the face. Yep. Why are you tapping, Jamal? That's what you say, like you're somebody's big brother. See, again, you prove to be a visionary when it comes to cheating at mixed martial arts fights because... I can't believe we haven't seen this before. And having read the unified rules, they haven't seen this one coming. Nope. They're not prepared for this eventuality. And nope. now that you have breathed life into it, you've all but guaranteed that it's going to happen. 
That's going to do it for listener mail this week. Remember, if you have a question, comment, or concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go over to the website, comainevent.com. Click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. So then, most of Leon Edwards versus Nate Diaz in an important welterweight fight, smack in the middle of the UFC 263 pay-per-view card, and one where we, at least by the UFC's own tellings, quote-unquote, made history by allowing these guys to go five rounds, despite the fact that it's not a championship fight, nor was it the main event, most of this thing looked about like what we expected. Leon Edwards, kind of a guy at the top of his game right now at 170 pounds, who had been hungry for a big fight, and frankly deserving of a big fight, came in with a meeting here against Nate Diaz, who obviously remains incredibly popular, but has not been seen around the octagon for a couple of years, does not have the rosiest win-loss record over the last several years, but nonetheless can still put up a big, a good fight, a good effort here. These guys uh, have an entertaining and suspenseful bout over the course of 25 minutes, most of it dominated by Leon Edwards. That last minute, though, is the one that got a lot of attention on fight night. Nate Diaz rocked Leon Edwards with a 1-2. Uh, some people theorizing that if he had had a couple more minutes or maybe another round, maybe Nate Diaz is the victor here. I wanted to ask you to begin this round is it unfair to Leon Edwards, as I have heard some people say online, to give this much attention to the last minute of the fight when, you know, 99.9% of this thing was was Leon Edwards's fight from start to finish? Yeah, I think some of it is just the inevitable impact of the, the Diaz mystique, basically. Yeah. How th- those guys can keep going out and losing fights and still be the main topic of conversation afterwards. And it's not the first time it's happened. It's just, it's a special power that they have. And you knew the moment you saw him land that left hand and wobble Leon Edwards that that was going to be the thing that people talked about. The other thing I hear him talking about, though, is that his response to landing that punch was to do the Nate Diaz signature point and smile. Yeah. You know, letting him know I got you. Instead of jumping on him and trying to finish that guy because you're hopelessly down on the scorecards. And even after he did kind of resume the attack and Leon Edwards is on the defensive and just trying to avoid and and let the time tick down, you didn't see Nate Diaz just really pull out absolutely everything and flurry his way to try to force a finish there. It seemed, I mean, and maybe some of that is just that there was only so much he had left in the tank by that point. He had been, had his leg kicked to shreds by then. He's bleeding out of multiple points in his head. So maybe he just did not have that flurry still left in him. Maybe that that one, two was about it. But it also did seem like maybe when he landed that punch, that was Nate Diaz's moment of going, okay, now I can just point to that. I don't really have to win. Uh, I'll I'll just, you know, we're going to say if this were out in the street, that's me preparing to beat him if this were a limitless fight that's going to go on forever until there was a victor eventually it would have been me and whatever but i i was a little bit surprised to see him not try to follow up a little harder on that yeah i think it could have been that he was surprised as the rest of us 
that that one-two combo stunned Leon Edwards, apparently as bad as it did. I mean, it was late in the fight, so I think Leon Edwards was was probably a little bit fatigued, and plus he got stung, so he ends up kind of stumbling around uh, in a way that, that was at least surprising to me in terms of, of how bad it, he seemed to be hurt by that by that combination. Of course, he holds on, he gets the unanimous decision win here and an important one for him in in this division a lot of talk now in the wake of this thing about what should be next for leon edwards dana white at the post vice press conference very complimentary about leon edwards but holding firm to the idea that somehow colby covington is still the number one contender for kamaro usman's welterweight title of course that leaves us with with the question of what to do here with leon edwards and i've seen two possibilities floated Either he fights Jorge Masvidal in what would be another fairly high-profile booking for Leon Edwards, or some people saying, hey, man, he and Bilal Muhammad both go out here on Saturday night and get wins. You know, their previous fight ended in a no contest after the accidental eye poke. Maybe we run this one back. Maybe we get Leon Edwards and Bilal Muhammad out there to, to do it again, brother. Let's say you are hired as UFC matchmaker, so now we got Sean Shelby Mick Maynard and Ben Folks uh, booking the uh, UFC fights. What's next for Leon Edwards in your mind here? Well, the, the problem with the Masvidal idea is what do you do if Masvidal wins? Because we've seen Masvidal against Usman twice now in close succession. And the last one, you know, he got all the sweat knocked out of his head and put away pretty definitively. So you kind of have to be prepared. I think Leon Edwards will probably win that fight, but if you're going to make those fights, you got to be prepared for it to make sense either way. And the Bilal Muhammad one makes a little more sense because Bilal Muhammad is, you know, a guy trying to come up the ranks there. The that eye poke finish is obviously unsatisfactory. They you could sell some kind of bad blood angle on it. And then if Bilal Muhammad does go out there and win, well then he's just proved to you that he's a top of welterweight, and so you can work with that. And if there's one thing that Kamar Usman seems like he's gonna be in dire need of, it's fresh contenders. Like Either if he fights Leon Edwards next or Colby Covington, either way, it's a rematch because he's just sort of been through most of these guys once already. And I, I don't know. I To me, I would be frustrated if I were Leon Edwards because if you're saying like, okay, hey, you went out there, you won the fight we gave you that we made into this high-profile fight, um, but hey, beating Nate Diaz isn't enough to get you a title shot. And then I go, well, then what did I do it for? Like I, he's been sitting there at in like the top five for a long time now. If you're telling me these matchups that we are offering you, even if you win, they aren't good enough to land you a title shot next. Then what the hell's the point of him saying yes to them? Like why? I would want some sort of clear path forward if I was Leon Edwards. I agree. You know, both of us were uh, sitting there during the watch party on on Saturday night talking about how old it made us feel to find out that Nate Diaz is 36 years old. The younger of the Diaz brothers is getting up there near near 40s into the second half of his 30s here. Uh, obviously, Damian Maya has, I guess not called him out, but in the nicest possible Damian Maya way, floated the idea of a fight between the two of them. I guess my question about Nate Diaz is, and I guess we can add this in with the uh, the emerging storyline that the UFC says Nick Diaz is expected to fight at some point this year. How long can these dudes keep doing this? How long can the Diaz brothers show up, be in shape, look dangerous, but not win, have a couple of moments, 
and maintain the snowball that has been the Diaz brothers popularity for years now. Like how, how long can that go on? Does that go on indefinitely? Will we, we be sitting here when these guys are 45 talking about, uh, you know, how we know what they're going to bring and it's going to be excitement and people are still going to pay to see it. Or does, do, do the Diaz brothers collectively need to get some wins here? I think they can keep this up roughly forever. Just, I, I also think though, we were talking before, about, hey, is some of the stuff that's going on that we see, these sort of funky boxing matchups, the thriller stuff, all that kind of stuff, is some of it more popular or getting more attention than it otherwise would just because we feel like there's not a ton of fun stuff going on in MMA? Yeah. I kind of wonder sometimes if the the ability of the Diaz brothers to keep this up is a similar thing. That Are we so easily excited about what they bring because... It's a certain kind of guaranteed fun, and we're not getting a ton of that elsewhere. They are sort of capitalizing on that, that we know, like, okay, hey, Nate Diaz is going to show up. He's going to give you something to look at, even if he's not really capable of winning the fight. He's going to make sure that it's some sort of memorable thing for one reason or another. And damn it, we need that. If you're Nate, know. If you're Nate Diaz, how much thought do you give to trying to fight out your contract and then crossing over to fight Cornelius Paul over on short Showtime because the elder Paul brother with his terrible beard and his bad skin is out here over the weekend talking about how he promises he will knock Nate Diaz out in a boxing match. And when he was asked, you know, even in the wake of the Ben Askren fight, who would you want to fight next? Who would you want to fight after this? He said Nate Diaz was the guy that he that he wanted to fight. If you were Nate Diaz, could you be swayed? at least by the rumors of how much is everyone is getting paid over there to, to fight these YouTube personalities. Hell yes, you could. I mean, it also depends on how many fights he has left on his contract. Do we know that? Because if it's two fights, then yeah, that's something to think about. You know, hurry up and get those done as fast as you can and then get over there, dip your biscuit in some of that gravy while it is still hot. You know what I mean? If it's six fights, well, that might be a little tougher yeah. to pull off. But... Yeah, absolutely. Especially because if the UFC sees you as somebody where oh, you're a big name, they can count on, but they're also going to put you in a bunch of tough ass fights, man. They're going to be trying to get some some shine for somebody else off of that name, most likely. And at 36 years old, those fights are just going to get tougher for Nate Diaz. If he could go over there and box a guy who's not really a boxer and, uh, you know, use some of that stuff that, that he has in reserve, uh, get paid a whole hell of a lot of money to do it. They'd probably let him smoke a blunt on the way to the ring while like a, a Tupac hologram serenades him into his corner. Like, hell yes, man. That's all a good time for Nate Diaz. He, he You're just checking a lot of boxes for him right now. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Do we have a joint Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? I believe that we do. All right, I got I this quote. Do. I went through and... Uh, cribbed out this quote that I just wanted to read. This will get us started. This, an actual question, an actual word for word question that was asked of Dana White, UFC President Dana White at the UFC 263 post-fight press conference. Let me just read this to you. You've created an environment of free expression that isn't happening in other sports. People can say what they believe. You seem to be saving the First Amendment in the United States. Is it too much to say 
the UFC is leading the way on restoring the Constitution in our own country. Are you fucking kidding me? Get the fuck out of here with this bullshit. Yes. Yes. It's too much to say that. It is too much to say that the UFC is leading the way on restoring the Constitution in our own country. Are you fucking kidding me? The the entire Constitution, that's the part that kind of gets me here. Even if I accept the premise of your question, sir, which is that by supporting First Amendment free speech rights, the UFC is is doing it to champion... You know, the, those very important liberties. Even if I accept that, which I do not, you're saying the entire Constitution would basically be in serious trouble right now if not for the UFC there to support it. Also, uh, anybody else remember that time Stitch Grand got fired for criticizing the Reebok deal? Because I do. Yeah. And I recall that... Uh, your, your right to say what you wanted didn't mean shit to the UFC then. They will fire your ass if the thing that you are saying is messing with the money and you are not an important enough person to them to be allowed to mess with the money. Then you can free speechify somewhere else, man, because they're not going to let you do it around here. No part of this question is accurate. <laughs> None of it. Not one single word who of it. Who was this? Who, and it, who, who, who asked this? I have no idea, man. But an environment of free expression that isn't happening in other sports? What? what? Like, uh, people Let in me a- try to read between the lines here. Is what he is saying, like, your guys could uh, post anti-vax stuff. They could post racist stuff. They could do all kinds of, like... They could support some of these things that we would consider like maybe dangerous misinformation, but that somebody else would consider like, hell yeah, bro, that's that's what free speech is for. They put that in there so that you could talk people out of getting vaccines and, and help us reach herd immunity. That's what Thomas Jefferson had in mind. Is that what they're talking about? Is that what they're saying when they're like, okay, you're, you're letting fighters speak their minds and restoring the Constitution? I hesitate to even guess because are you fucking kidding me this is this is not a real question nothing in this question is real all right that's gonna do it for round number one we'll be right back round number two Chad, sitting there at the press conference before this one, Davy Fig showed up with his sunglasses on, yelling at people in Portuguese, shoving that nice boy Brandon Moreno, who then had to get grabbed up by a security guard despite the fact that he wasn't doing anything. He was just trying to stand there and mind his own business, waiting for the opportunity to fight on Saturday night. And then... Nice fellow that he is, after he's done taking selfies with Nate Diaz, politely declining some of the reefer that that bad influence boy Nate Diaz offered him. Then he just goes out there in the biggest fight of his career, snatches up a third round rear naked choke, and what do you know? Brandon Moreno is your new UFC flyweight champion. Also, the first 
fighter born in Mexico to become a UFC champion. And he just seems so goddamn tickled with yeah. the, the entire thing. He wins a, a championship belt and it just ebullient about how do you not feel good for that guy? Yeah, man. Like, not only does the assassin baby come in here and kind of handle Davison Figueredo, mostly in all facets here over the course of their three round fight, uh, you know, leading to the to the stoppage here. But he also jumps on the mic afterwards and uh, and is just really endearing, man. Like, it seems like a likable sort that would be that is easy to support and and a guy you want to watch fight again and, and you want to see where all this goes. And as you mentioned, uh, the first UFC champ from south of the border, the first Mexican UFC champ, and though its efforts have cooled down considerably, since we had a disastrous attempt to take Cain Velasquez down to Mexico City and establish him as a star in the notoriously fight crazy Latin American market. But like, that's one of the things the UFC has wanted for a while now, man. The UFC has wanted a bankable star that it can promote in Mexico and do events down there. And it seems like if he can hold on to the title for a while, which obviously in this sport is always a big if, but Brandon Moreno could be that dude, man. He seems like he could be that dude, just based on everything that we have seen up to this point, both in the cage and personality-wise. Hard not to like everything that's going on with Brandon Moreno right now. Yeah, even the thing about uh, Davison shoving him before the fight, his quote afterwards, I have so much respect for Davison. Obviously, he tried to make it something special to put more eyes in the fight, pushed me in the press conference. But actually, when he pushed me, I knew I won the fight. I won the fight there. My confidence was very high, and he looked different. He didn't want to look me in the eyes. He put his sunglasses on. He just looked different. When the fight started, I started very, very hard. I started with really high pace. That was the game plan at first, and that was it. Uh, and then definitely he's a nice guy. He's a really good person. He has a family, a wife, just like me. I don't have any animosity against him. And he looks very respectful after the fight. For me, the sport means that. Uh, yeah, I mean... That's the the most charitable possible interpretation you could have of the guy shoving you at the press conference. Yeah, and he also made a comment about that he thinks Davison Figueroa cuts too much weight yeah. to get to one twenty five, which was a thing we wondered about beforehand, especially because he took every last second of the allotted weigh in time on Friday in order to make it to the scales. Made one twenty five, didn't look like he was about to go dancing after he got off the scales. Looked looked in fact like. Everybody was standing around watching to see if he was going to collapse, if we we're going to have another one of those moments. Like he, he looked kind of rough in it. And then when Brandon Moreno saying this thing about how he looked different, at least in the fight, like the way he started this fight and his approach, I don't know how much of it was that might have been physical or if it was a tactical change or something, but he did look different. He yeah. fought different in this yeah. one. Yeah. And like this was a very unusual circumstance. For a UFC title fight, right? Because Brandon Moreno and Davison Figueredo had just fought. It was a an absolute barn burner, ended in a majority draw. So we had to turn around and come come do this thing again almost immediately. And it's that rare circumstance where an immediate rematch makes sense and nobody's gonna complain about it because frankly, we want to see these two guys fight again. So there could be a lot of legitimate reasons why Davison Figueredo would come up with a game plan or think that he wanted to approach this fight differently than he had approached the first one and differently than he had approached, you know, any of his title defenses previous to this, because what we have seen from Davis and Figueredo up to this point is he comes out there and houses motherfuckers. Like he looks yeah. enormous at this weight. He's aggressive and he just fucking 
destroys you pretty much. And that was not what happened here. And especially in the early going, when Brandon Moreno was getting the better of some of these striking exchanges, Davidson Figueredo was doing this thing, which we have seen from champions before, but you know, favored fighters before he was kind of like laughing about it, smiling to himself, like, ha ha, you got me. Like you've, you've touched me up a little bit here, but it doesn't matter because eventually I'm going to flip the switch. And the thing that always happens is always, is going to happen again. And that's that I'm going to win. Of course, it didn't end up going like that. And it's tough to look at the fight now and figure out why, you know, Davis and Figueredo looked the way he did. Like, clearly, this is a tough weight cut for him, as you said, came in right at the end of the weigh-in window and hit 125 to go out for this title defense. Uh, And he just looked a little sluggish, like he couldn't really get out of first gear kind of for a lot of this fight. Not to take anything away from Brandon Moreno, who had a great performance, but it also looked like a little bit of an odd performance for Davis and Figueredo. Uh, And if that guy... If that guy's next fight wasn't at bantamweight, I would be surprised. Let's just say that because I think like he might be better off up there just from what we've seen in this most recent fight. But yeah, it's, it's, it was a, a little bit of a weird performance from Davis and Figueredo. I don't know that even a, a supercharged, uh, absolute firing on all cylinders, Davis and Figueredo would have beat Brandon Moreno on this night. But uh it did seem like Moreno was was ready to go for this. Said he had a six month long camp where he focused almost entirely on uh, Davis and Figueredo, and uh, and he deserved to win. But it also seemed like a weird performance by the former champion as well. Yeah, but then for Brandon Moreno, I mean, I saw several people making this point that if you kind of look at his career trajectory, another one of the feel good aspects about it is. You know, he was on that season of the Ultimate Fighter and I believe was picked last when they went around picking teams. And that. And then, you know, he had that time where the UFC seemed like maybe it was thinking about backing off a of flyweight completely. And he was one of the guys cut from the UFC only to then be re-signed. Uh, you, you know, you see that guy come up. We do the thing in MMA where we think we know everything about you pretty early on, and then we we set a kind of script in our minds, and it takes a lot to get us to deviate from it. And now he's sitting there as the UFC flyweight champion. That is, I, I feel like, a good reminder for a lot of people that this is. You see some guy when he is, you know, 15, 16 pro fights into his pro career. It doesn't mean you've seen absolutely everything you need to know about him necessarily. Yeah, I mean, and the assassin baby, as we sit here today, is 27 damn years old, won't turn 28 till December. It's possible he's still got some growth in front of him. It's possible he's he's still uh, getting better in this in this sport. Obviously, there's a lot of hoops to jump through here and a lot of hurdles to, to clear, and we have no idea how the flyweight title reign of Brandon Moreno will play out. But wouldn't it be interesting? Wouldn't it be ironic uh, if... The flyweight title, the division that the UFC has frequently expressed a willingness to cut bait from, uh, the title that at times it seemed like we were prepared to just walk away from entirely. Wouldn't it be something if that were the title that that like cracked open the Mexican fight market for the UFC? That would be uh, a turn of events, let's just say. It would. That would be a turn of events. All right, uh, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three.
Ben, we talked at length heading into this fight about how you know, this was one Israel Adesanya needed to have after an unfortunate and unsuccessful foray up to light heavyweight, uh, where he suffered his first career loss to the light heavyweight champion Jan Blahovich against a guy uh, who was just flat bigger than him and maybe a little bit better rounded and able to use some of those grappling skills to salt away the unanimous decision at UFC 259. Marvin Vittori, in theory at least, headed into this fight, had some of those same skills, takedowns, top control, the ability to dictate perhaps where this fight takes place. But Israel Adesanya pretty much blanked that dude in this fight and had his way from start to finish wins this one by unanimous decision uh not only to get the taste out of his mouth of that first career loss against Jan Blahovich but also uh for his third successful middleweight title defi- defense and to, I don't know just kind of remind us all I guess like hey remember when you when I was tabbed the the UFC's best hope for a new young star I'm still that guy and I'm still out here handing 185 pound dudes their ass uh how impressive was this performance to you and was it easier than you thought it would be for Israel Adesanya or was it about what you expected? It was a little easier or at least looked a little easier than I thought it would be just because he was able for so much of the fight to just keep Marvin Vittori right where he wanted him and at that range where Adesanya can touch you and you can't really touch him back very well and he he's so good from that range and that has been the problem for a whole lot of people we've seen Several different opponents now try to come up with different ways to solve it. Like where you saw Robert Whitaker try to sort of leap in and attack as soon as you get close enough and then end up getting eaten up with counters. You saw Yoel Romero just be like, you know what? No, I will not move from this spot. I will oblige you to come after me and try to create such a hard like defensive shell that you won't be able to crack through it. And now uh, hopefully open up the opportunity for counters myself. That didn't really work. You saw Paulo Costa struggle with the same thing. Like, you know, couldn't get his usual Paulo Costa stuff going. I think that that range can be really difficult for people, especially just because he manages it so well. And as the time has gone by and he's become a more well-rounded fighter. It's like, even when you do get in there, even if you do manage to take him down or you manage to get him in a clinch or something, doing something with it is really, really hard. And trying to like actually turn that into meaningful offense. Because you saw Marvin Vittori here. Yeah, get a couple takedowns, get it to the mat a little bit, but almost able to do almost zero with it. You know, even when he looked for a second, like, okay, maybe he's going to snatch his neck or something. He just ends up letting uh, Adesanya roll and take top position on him. And it's just like, well, shit, man, if if you can't capitalize from there, what are you going to do? Yeah, I I thought this shaped up as a potential sort of trap fight for Israel Adesanya, uh, not only because of Marvin Vittori's skills, but also just sort of like it seemed like we booked this one just so Israel Adesanya would have something to do to fight Israel Ad- or to fight Marvin Vittori. I'm sorry, uh, and I thought Vittori might fare a little bit better if he was able to to nab some more of those takedowns and then do something with him once he got. Israel Adesanya on the ground. Of course, as it turned out, that was not to be. It sort of seemed like he had nothing for the champion. Uh, I want to talk f- in a minute about you know what is probably next for Israel Adesanya and if we think anybody at this weight uh, can challenge him at the moment. But Marvin Vittori's reaction to this fight obviously got some press in the aftermath of it. Uh, you know, Israel Adesanya approached him between the time that the fight ended and the decision was announced. So before we had really officially gotten confirmation 
uh, that Israel Adesanya had won this, although it seemed pretty academic in everyone's minds. And they had an exchange uh, in the cage, something something to the effect of Israel Adesanya saying, well, at least you can say I won this one, referring to his split decision victory in their first fight. And Vittori kind of being like, uh, what you talking about, bro? I'm pretty sure I won this one. And there's no real reason for Marvin Vittori to feel that way, especially since as we watched this fight, pretty much between every round, they would cut to Marvin Vittori's corner uh, and his cornermen would be like, hey, man, you're losing. Like, yeah. you're losing pretty bad here. Let's see what let's see what we can do. Uh, I think it's a weird situation to put Marvin Vittori in in some ways to approach him before the decision is announced and be like, well, hey, at least I won this one. Because I think you could see how, like, if that was you in there, you would want to at least wait to get the official word as to who had actually won this fight. Uh, so I can kind of understand why Marvin Vittori would bristle a little bit at Israel Adesanya's suggestion that that he had won before uh, this thing actually got announced. But at the same time, it seemed like a very uh, clear-cut win for, for Israel Adesanya. Ben, what did you make of that exchange, and what did you make of uh, Marvin Vittori, like even, I guess, sort of at the press conference, kind of being, being like, well, I don't totally agree with the scorecards? Well, I saw him, you know, it's one of those where after the end of the fight, everybody wants to put their arms up and walk around and, and see if they can make some sort of impact on the judges. But when you see Marvin Vittori doing it after this fight, there was a part of me that went, really? But but really, do you really think you won that after 25 minutes? Especially because, like you said, I think it was between the fourth and the fifth round, he's standing there in his corner and looking pretty tired and a little haggard, like leaning up against the fence. And his coaches are in his ear like, man, you are about to lose this fight if you don't do something big here. I don't know how you can hear that. Go out there, not do something big. And then when the final bell rings, go, yeah, I'm pretty sure I got this one. Pretty sure, unless the judges screw me out of it. I think, I don't, I mean, I don't, maybe some of it is like a, for the same reason a lot of fighters need to make excuses after a loss, that is some sort of ego protective thing that you tell yourself, like, no, I've, I basically won. I, I, I deserve to win, even if nobody else sees it but me. But I don't know, man. I don't see them, uh, parading him through the canals of Venice trying to swim up to this gondola to touch the garments, as you predicted. I don't know yeah. if he returns as a, as a hero after this one, because it seems to me like this one kind of shuts the door on the, on whatever rivalry there was. It was a little bit hard to generate interest in this matchup to begin with. I don't think I, it, Marvin Vittori can beat every other middleweight in existence, and he might still not get another crack at the, the UFC title as long as Israel Asani is holding it. Speaking of beating other middleweights, obviously Israel Adesanya remains your champion, and, and every indication is that we will cruise into a rematch here with Bobby Knuckles. Those guys fought the first time back in 2019, so by the time we get to it, most likely in the fall, it will have been a couple of years since we saw them them fight Israel Adesanya is now in this position where as the champion, as I look at these UFC rankings in front of me during our recording of this, Robert Whitaker is still officially your number one contender. Paulo Costa is number two uh, and Marvin Vittori is number three. So um, all guys that Israel Adesanya has very recently defeated. Now, I guess I want to get your thoughts on the uh, potential different outcome in a rematch between Robert Whitaker and Israel Adesanya. And, and is Adesanya at the point now where we're very rapidly approaching 
a situation where he has just flat defeated everyone else or many of the top contenders at, at 185 pounds. And it's going to be hard to find fresh, fresh title defenses for this guy. Yeah, he is approaching that point. I mean, there's still some people down there. You have to look further down the rankings for guys like Jared Cannonier and Darren Till. That's one that he seems really interested in, but the the Whitaker one will be the point I think will it'll look like he's starting to lap people in the middleweight division. I'm interested to see what Robert Whitaker comes up with here because not only is he a just a physically really good fighter, he's a really smart fighter. So I got to think that after having been in there, tried one approach against his Rodasanya and, and seen it fail, that he will come up with something else. I just don't know what the something else would be, and I don't even know. It's not like you could even give him any good advice. Like, if if Robert Whitaker is your friend, and the two of you are playing Xbox in the basement, and he turns to you in between you know, rounds of Tekken, and he's like, Chad, I'm at a loss here, man. You've seen this guy in action. What, what do you think? What should I do? I mean, if it was me, I'd be like, I don't know, man. Like, uh... He has to slip on a banana peel sometime, right? Because I don't know what, like, how to to fix that game plan for those people who where they feel like just like physically the dimensions aren't working out in their favor, and this guy can do so many good things from that range. How do you deal with that? I don't have any good suggestions. Hopefully, Robert Whitaker can find somebody in his camp who does. First of all, if I was hanging out with Robert Whitaker, we would be playing that weird basketball. Uh, combo game that they play in the gym down there where you run around with the basketball and and you try to make shots. Second of all, this hits close to home because a lot of the great fighters do come to me for advice, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly in in game planning. Uh, And I would say, hey, man, I called Rafael Cordero and he said, double jab, get him up against the fence, work your takedowns. There you go. Simple as that. Case closed. We saw how well it worked on Saturday night. I don't know. I, yep. all, all jokes aside, I am excited to watch Bobby Knuckles and Israel Adesanya fight again for all the reasons that you just said, like Robert Whitaker, a cerebral guy and athletically talented. And clearly the thing he tried to do the first time around didn't work. That That's not the way to do it. So it will be interesting to see if just physically and in terms of game planning, he can come up with some other way to get to Israel Adesanya at this point a tough ass guy to get to in, in this, in this division. Uh, let's do just saying stuff. And then we will get out of here this week. Ben, I, I, I don't oftentimes do a serious just saying stuff here, but I saw this article from the guardian today that I wanted to at least notify the, uh, the co-main event podcast listening audience to. And that is this, these efforts that are ongoing here at a couple of labs around the world to use, uh, psychedelic drugs to try to help cure brain trauma in athletes and particularly in boxers, uh, especially using uh, mushrooms, frankly, to try to, uh, you know, not only cope with some of the depression that uh, that these sort of brain traumatic brain injuries can bring on, but also uh, in some ways to to make some strides repairing that tissue or at least uh you know, quote unquote, curing some of the neurologic damage that, that has happened during your fight career. Um, I know Mike Tyson is one of the guys who has gone on record saying that if he had the be- the benefit of psychedelics early in his career, he feels like he would have been a lot more stable. Uh, the World Boxing Council at this point is endorsing this idea of trying to figure out, you know, to what extent these the psychedelics can be used to make life better for uh, former boxers and uh, the... Uh, 
one of the leading labs here in the in the world is run by a guy, uh, Daniel Carcillo, who was known as the Car Bomb, was an NHL player and suffered, you know, what he says are countless concussions and sub concussions during his career. And I know that this is a uh, this is an issue that hits fairly close to home in mixed martial arts as well, obviously. Uh, so I guess I'm just saying the rare week where it seems like there might be at least a hint of good news in terms of, you know, caring for athletes down the road, uh, coping with CTE and, and other brain maladies brought on by repetitive uh, concussive blows. Uh, and I hope it goes somewhere, man. I hope that people, you know, I hope that the medical community and the uh, the sanctioning bodies and everything else can you know, no pun intended, but have an open mind about this and we can continue to explore different avenues of therapy for these guys because uh, a lot of them end up having a tough time later in life after their fighting careers are over. And if there's anything that can help them, you know, even if it is psychedelic drugs, let's do it, man. Let's give it a shot. I'm just saying. Yeah. Also, in addition to potentially helping with uh, brain issues, uh, it's just fun. Mm-hmm. It's just fun to do. Yeah. You know, like yeah. sync the Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon album up with Wizard of Oz and uh, you got yourself a nice Tuesday evening. Yeah, a lot of the Just, uh, the clinicians are like, I understand you're a former boxing champion. Have you ever been to Burning Man? Uh, <laughs> we've been having a lot of success sending our guys down to Burning Man late later in their careers. We're just going to spread a blanket out on the uh, back lawn and we're going to lay there in the sun and think about how there's a whole world down there in the grass, man. You never even thought about it before now. Um, I'm just saying, Chad, there's a, a sort of personal essay type thing in Wealth Simple magazine from the perspective of George St. Pierre, written by Andrew Goldman. It seems like one of those things where a famous person is going to talk to a writer who will then turn it into words on the page for you, but kind of telling his story about his financial life in MMA and in the UFC. He notes, Chad, that his first title fight in the UFC when he fought Matt Hughes that first time and lost via armbar he was making 9000 to show and 9000 to win so he fought for a UFC title and lost for $9000 against yeah. Matt Hughes then the most dominant welterweight this sport had ever known then of course later on he wins the belt becomes a big deal but before his fight with John Fitch in 2008 he said he had told the UFC I'm not going to sign a new deal I'm going to fight out my contract and test free agency. Wow, who knows how that would have gone with the champions clause and all that other stuff. But here's here's the the quote here. So after I won the championship in 2008, I took a big gamble on myself, told the UFC I was not going to resign with them. And then the day before my fight with John Fitch, the UFC came back with a big crazy contract because they didn't want me to become a free agent. You read I made $400,000 a match? No, I made a lot more than that. A lot more than that. Millions. When I was at the peak of my career, I was making many millions of dollars because you not only get the money to show and the money to win, but you also have a percentage of the gate and the pay-per-view buys. The gate and the pay-per-view buys are where the real money is. That's how fight make their money but you need to have the power to negotiate those terms i was very successful so i could demand that extra money goes on to come to claim that for his last fight against michael bisping he made 10 million dollars chad i'm just saying can we pause for a moment and imagine the alternate universe in which george st pierre beats beats the brakes off of john fitch in 2008 becomes a free agent and then signs with strike force Sense of affliction? What happens? Yeah. What happens in that world, Chad? 
something something very different from the world we understand today. Maybe the uh, maybe Scott Coker's partners over there at Strikeforce don't aren't so quick to cut bait if you got George St. Pierre out there uh, beating up Paul Daly and whatnot. I just imagine you're going to go out there and fight Matt Hughes for a UFC title, even if it is like 2005 or or whatever. And they go, well, thanks for coming. Here's your check for $9,000. That's pre-tax now. Don't forget. You're going you're gonna to go back to Canada and pay some taxes on that one. Yeah. But, uh, hey, maybe you'll still have something left over when you pay your training costs. Weirdly enough, George St. Pierre's account of fighting Matt Hughes the first time sounds a lot like Dan Hardy's account of fighting George St. Pierre several years later. <laughs> Almost like there's a pattern there that we could uh, determine if we paid real close attention. Just saying. Just saying. That is going to do it for this week's co Event Podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Of course, uh, we'll be over at the Patreon page all week. We got the uh, live chat on Wednesday, the Movie Club on Thursday, where we'll be talking about, I think, Face Off. I think that the, the, the voting on that is wrapped up at the Patreon page. We're going to be watching Nicolas Cage in, in Face Off. And then, of course, Friday for the uh, the Power Hour leading into this weekend where... Uh, the Korean zombie is going to fight Dan Ige at this UFC fight night. And then uh, we'll be back one week from today here on The Proper to do it all over again. As for right now, though, we're done. We're through. We're out. Can I admit that I was really hoping Faceoff would not win? Wow. It's, it's the Pulling worst back of the, the curtain. Pulling back the curtain and letting the, the people in. I told you if we put Faceoff on there, it's going to win. I told you between The Rock, Con Air, and Face Off. Face Off is unquestionably the worst film of the three. Is that what the patrons have done was here on purpose? Well, I think you've got the, uh, the recognition of the whole I'm going to take your face off. See, try to stick some people's brains, makes it an easy vote for them. I'm not saying that the uh, that it's not a draw for the people who listen to us talk about a bad movie. I also think that is a thing that uh, maybe they like sometimes. But I agree with you. I would have rather watched The Rock or uh, or Con Air. Going to miss out on Nick Cage's terrible southern accent in Con Air. That's okay. Okay.